0: adds four-tenths of a percent per year to someone's performance if they just rebalance once a year. So systematic rebalancing is important, and that's the first thing I want to bring people's attention to. Thanks for joining us today for The Capitalist Investor. I'm Mark Tepper, and I'm joined by Derek Gabrielson.
1: Hi, Mark. How are you today?
0: I'm good. So Dee, look, a lot of things going on out there. We've got the coronavirus pandemic still front and center. You know, a lot of listeners, a lot of investors are wondering what they should be doing with their portfolios during this recession. What should they be doing to properly prepare to soften the pain that they might be feeling during the recession? But more importantly, D, I've actually had more questions from clients recently about how can I be best positioned to really take advantage of the rebound when it happens? Absolutely. And I'm having those same conversations with my clients as well. Which is great. It's great to be out in front of our clients, consistently communicating with them, educating them, letting them know, you know what we're actively doing in their strategies so that the questions we're getting are not, I'm panicking, should I sell? But rather, what can I do right now to take advantage of the current landscape, which is awesome. Right. So, I think what would be helpful for our listeners is just for us to kind of discuss those key issues. April first is quarterly rebalance day for most investment strategies, and that's the first thing I want to touch on. D is I want to talk about rebalancing because rebalancing is. Um, there was a there was a study. I think Vanguard did the study, Derek. If you remember, and they looked at long term performance, and I want to say that just annual rebalancing, not even quarterly, annual rebalancing adds like four-tenths of a percent to somebody's long-term portfolio returns, uh, four-tenths of a percent annually. Do you remember that study? I do remember that
1: study. I I know it well, and and that that is correct.
0: Four-tenths of a percent, just rebalancing one time per year. It's so simple. But you know what? People are going to be afraid to to execute on it this week. Right? (laughs) So, I mean, here's why rebalancing is important let's assume you're in a 60-40 portfolio. You're 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And the market's doing really well, which it's not right now, but we'll go back to the the end of 2019. Market was doing really well. S&P was up around 30% for the year. And your 60-40 portfolio at the end of the year, because you experienced so much appreciation in stocks, let's just assume you were now out of whack and you were a 70-30 allocation now. Right? You're 70% in stocks, 30% in bonds because your stock holdings did so well. Right. On January 1st, what you should have done, and I'm assuming a lot of people did not do it because <laughs> they were coming off the high of an unbelievable year in the stock market. What you should have done is you should have sold stocks to get back to 60, 40 and bought bonds, correct? Absolutely. That is a hard thing for a lot of people to do coming off a 30% gain in the stock market. Right. The average investor is
1: very emotional, right? And and they're just
0: gonna they make the wrong moves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now the right move, looking at the second quarter of 2020, if your stock positions are down, so you're typically a 60 40 stock to bond kind of person, maybe now you're 50 50. The right thing to do in April is to get back to 60 40, which means, oh my gosh, this is terrifying selling bonds and buying stocks. Right? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> oh yeah, that is the right thing to be doing. And Warren Buffett has said it best. You want to be greedy when others are fearful. And if that is your process, if you are a quarterly rebalance person, it's something you have to do as frightening as it may be. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be right every time you rebalance, Derek? No,
1: <laughs> absolutely not.
0: There's going to be some times where you're wrong, and maybe you rebalance the first week of April, and it turns out maybe you shouldn't have done it, right? Mm -hmm. Probably 80% of the time, it's going to be the right decision for you, right? And in the long run, that Vanguard study did prove that it adds four tenths of a percent per year to someone's performance if they just rebalance once a year. So, systematic rebalancing is important, and that's the first thing I want to bring people's attention to. That's what you need to be looking at doing in April you need to be looking at rebalancing.
1: And if you're a listener out there and you, and you haven't been doing that, that is a good discipline to get into. You know, it doesn't have to be just during a pandemic like this or just during an up 30% market. You know, have the discipline to get
0: back to that overall allocation that you want to be at. Exactly. And, and you know, D, I think what a retail investor needs to do is they need to come up with their own process. I actually had a phone call with somebody yesterday who has just seen me on CNBC. What I was trying to help her to figure out is, is how to come up with the process, write that process down and stick to it. It'll help prevent you making irreversible financial mistakes and making decisions based off of emotion. Develop your own investment process and just stick to it, right? You come up with your own investment handbook. And if your investment handbook says you're going to rebalance the first day of every quarter, no matter what's going on, you have to do it. You have to stick to it. This is going to work long-term. It may not work for that first week, but it's going to work long-term. Yep. If your investment policy that you come up with says, if any of the companies I own, if their CEO resigns or is fired, I'm bailing on the stock, no matter how much I love it. If you put that in writing and you add that to your investment policy, then you stick to it, right? Sometimes it won't work, but if that's your policy, you need to stick to it. So I think that's maybe one of the most important takeaways that our listeners should have is you need to come up with your own policy and you need to stick to it, regardless of what's happening out there. The next thing I want to talk about, I want to talk about asset classes that may underperform on the backside of this economic crisis. I want to talk about some industries that may underperform, some industries that I think may outperform on the backside of this crisis. And what I believe is happening is you are going to see a seismic shift in consumer behaviors, attitudes, preferences. You're going to see a seismic shift in the way we work Maybe more people are working virtually. You're going to see a seismic shift in the way education is being conducted. There may be more distance learning. So these are trends that people are living with right now, but these are trends that could impact our society for the next decade.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we we just have no idea what really we can expect on the other side of this. But you're a thousand percent right in saying it's going to change. (laughs)
0: There's no doubt about that. Right. So, I mean, the one thing I want to hit on is from an asset allocation standpoint, let's assume you're using a robo-advisor. There's no thought that goes into a robo-advised account. Let's assume you're using a target date mutual fund right? You're in the the target date, 2020, 2025, 2030, whatever it might be, whatever year is most closely aligned to where you expect to retire. Those things, they can't think, they can't be tactical, they can't be strategic. So if they believe that you should have a 6% allocation to small cap stocks, every time they rebalance, they're going to get you back to a 6% allocation to small cap stocks, right? And I'm just using small caps as an example here. So typically, when you emerge from a recession, small caps typically lead the way. They snap back fastest and most aggressively. So typically, if you could get into small caps at or near the bottom, which no one can time the bottom, but assuming you hypothetically could, you would expect outsized performance in small caps over the course of the next year. My issue, D, is that I don't think that That's going to happen this time. Heading into this crisis, when you looked at the small cap sector as a whole, now I'm talking about the sector. There's individual small cap stocks that I think are great. They're healthy. They're going to grow. They're going to be fine. But when you look at the sector as a whole, they were carrying much more debt to income than large cap stocks. 40% of the companies in the Russell 2000, that's the small cap index, weren't making any money you know, they had negative earnings. So that's a recipe for disaster. When you owe a lot of money to a lot of people, you're already not making any money, and then you're, you see a revenue decline. I think kind of as an effect from this economic shutdown, I think there's going to be a long-term struggle for small businesses that are privately held. I also think that small caps are going to struggle emerging from this economic crisis. Would you agree with that?
1: You know, I wouldn't. I, I have not really heard that opinion out there too much. And, and we're, we're taking in a lot of content every day. So yeah, Mark, that is an excellent point that I have not heard expressed so far. Uh, but you're
0: absolutely right. I I don't see any way you couldn't be right. Yeah. I mean, they don't have strong balance sheets like the large caps do. So they're not going to be able to weather this storm. Like we just talked about in a previous episode, cheesecake factories can't pay their rent. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's a big chain of restaurants there, Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> so there's obviously issues that are happening out there. You know, so let's just use that small cap example. If what I'm saying is true, and that's just my opinion, and I need to de you know obviously the two of us and our, our, the rest of our team, our investment research analysts, we all need to sit down and, and make sure that is our position. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that, and I think most of us are on board that that's our position, But assuming that is our position, Should we maintain status quo and still be 6% in small cap stocks? No, most definitely not. You probably want to consider lightening up on that kind of to get through this economic crisis, but probably on the backside of it as well. Mm -hmm. Will a robo advised account do that for you? Absolutely not. Will a target date mutual fund do that for you? No. Will the lazy financial advisor down the street do that for you? (laughs) Definitely not. No, no, no. Those are the answers. That's something that you as an investor need to be thinking about right now. That's what we're doing. We're very tactical when it comes to managing client portfolios. We're tactical as it relates to asset classes, overweighting, underweighting different asset classes. We are tactical when it comes to the stocks we own. We will overweight, underweight different sectors, and we will identify those stocks that we feel are best of breed within sectors. So, you know, that's that's important to do. So, from an asset class standpoint, I just gave an example of small cap stocks. D, let's talk about some industry outlooks. So, I mean, obviously, Derek, the first thing that comes to mind are department stores. Right. They're all shut down. They were already struggling before this happened. They they really were. Macy's was a dinosaur. I mean, the only thing that had Kohl's even on life support was the fact that they started accepting uh amazon returns mm-hmm. right i actually did that one one time did you buy anything at kohl's at the same uh, time no
1: no <laughs> I got in and out as fast as i possibly could
0: so i kind of backfired but <laughs> hey look I, I give kohl's credit for thinking outside the box and realizing no one's buying from us anymore they're all buying from amazon so why don't we make it easy for them to return get butts in our stores and then we can actually hopefully get them to buy some of our merchandise. So, I mean, kudos to Kohl's for doing it, but you know they're hurting. Nordstrom, closed. All these different stores are closing. Lululemon, one of my favorite stocks that has just always been out of my price range. It's fell into our laps as far as price goes. And I had a talk with our investment team here and I said, you know, it, it fell into my lap. I think it might be time to get some. They talked me out of it saying, Hey man, they are shuttering stores right now. They're closing them down and we're not going to touch them until after earnings. So, I mean, this is being released after their earnings call, but even a company like that, Lulu, which was on fire, Mm -hmm. even that is like, Ooh, do I want to touch it right now? Right? So department stores, I don't know how well they recover from this. Now, obviously, Lulu has a competitive advantage. They go direct to consumer. So that's not the example that I'm going for here. But I, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of bring them up. But you know, consumer preferences were already changing, Derek. People were buying stuff online. Yeah, Absolutely. And it- now you know, these stores were struggling and who knows if they reopen, right? So that's a problem. So if you've been holding on to Macy's waiting for it to come back, just take an L on it by now. Take an L and move on. It's a loser, right? Sell it, get out.
1: Another important thing to write down if you're a retail investor out there sell discipline.
0: Yes. And that's important to know every time you enter a position. And I got to tell you so I, I talked with somebody yesterday, not a client. This was just someone that's a fan. Talked with her yesterday. And she didn't have a sell discipline. This is the lady that I was trying to tell, you know, you need to come up with some sort of an investment process or, or strategy or you know, whatever it is and stick to it. She had a bunch of loser stocks and, and her mindset was, I'm going to dollar cost average now that they're down. So if I do have to sell, my losses aren't as significant. That's not what you want to be doing, mm-hmm. though, right? And the way I explained it to her is, hey, if you made a bad decision, take the L. Just get out of it. There's other stocks that might be better positioned to rebound faster on the other side of this that are down just as much, right? So just reposition your money, upgrade your portfolio, get into better stocks. Boeing and the airlines, they're looking to be recipients of the bailout. Mm-hmm. And Derek, what I can tell you, is that coming out of the Great Recession, any of those companies that accepted bailout money significantly underperformed the rest of the stock market for the next decade. Significantly. So if you think that maybe you're going to get in low and you're going to experience outsized returns by buying these things low, like I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have a crystal ball, right? But I can just tell you based on history, they've been underperformers if they receive bailout money. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's another thing for the retail investor, kind of bottom feeding, finding the stocks that have declined the fastest and and hardest, and trying to buy those. You know, you you really need to take a look at, you know, exactly what you're getting into because it's not just going to automatically snap back with the rest of the market if they have issues as a company.
0: Yep, and there there are opportunities to go bottom feeding with companies that have been unfairly punished, where their long-term secular growth story is still intact, right? Oh yeah. Bottom fishing or bottom feeding into companies where their their secular growth story is broken, not a good idea. Not a good idea. So one one more negative area I want to mention, then let's talk about some of the opportunities and then we'll call it a day. All right. REITs, specifically, well, obviously retail REITs, those have been bad for years, but those are just, I mean, a complete no touch at this point. But what I'm looking at is like commercial office space REITs. Like, D, I mean, we've got 10,000 square feet here. Half of our company is at home working virtually. Right. Right. And we're just one example. And I'm not even saying we're going to do this, but let's use us as an example. Let's just, I mean, hopefully this doesn't happen, but what if this drags on for six months? Mm -hmm. Drags on for six months. People begin to embrace this virtual work kind of economic change, societal change, whatever it might be. Do we still need 10,000 square feet? No. No. No, probably not. <laughs> I mean, maybe we need 5,000 square feet if people are working virtually. What happens to these commercial office space REITs? What happens to the, the landlords that, that own these buildings? That would be a, a, a place where I would not want to invest money right now. I would agree. Mm-hmm. Now, however, the one REIT that we've owned for clients is a data center REIT. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's kind of now shift over to where there's opportunities. So it only owns data centers data centers are now even more important than they were two months ago. More important than they were three weeks ago because more people are going to need to store information in the cloud and the data center is the cloud. In case you didn't know, there's really no information in the clouds, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's these big warehouses that have a bunch of computer equipment and that's where it's at. Those are called data centers. So there's going to be more of a need for that, especially if people transition over towards more virtual workstations, desktops, stuff like that. So there are companies that specialize in that. Obviously, Zoom is the one everyone's talking about. That stock has gone through the roof. Now, we just did a Zoom meeting, a Zoom team meeting this morning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to exit the meeting and re-enter because of glitches Zoom was having. I'm also getting email reminders for meetings that I had six hours ago I'm going to get them three hours from now, right? I mean, my Zoom is backed up. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that they're backed up maybe four days for some people. Now we have a, a subscription, so we're not experiencing the same backup as those people that are using the free membership. But Zoom has gone through the roof. I would be a little concerned about buying Zoom at this point. Hey, maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe the stock keeps going up. But when the economy reopens, what happens to a stock like Zoom? That literally zoomed up over (laughs) the last several weeks. Right. But there's other plays out there like Microsoft. There's uh, Salesforce, CRM. Right. So there's other virtual plays out there that, that you can take advantage of. And you know that Microsoft has been making money for a long time. They're really good at it. Right. So, you know, I think data centers are an opportunity. Virtual works an opportunity. This is the first podcast we've done where Dee and I are actually in different locations. Dee is taking advantage of our virtual workspace right now. I'm in the office and we have probably about half of our employees right now working virtually. So Dee, how's your internet and broadband bandwidth at home? It stinks. Yeah, (laughs) it stinks at my house. It stinks at work. And why do you think that is?
1: The system was not built to handle this
0: where we don't have the infrastructure for everyone to be streaming at the same time. Yep. Everyone's home, everyone's streaming at the same time, everyone's eating up that bandwidth and it's it's slowing me down so much in the office. It's taking me twice as long to do anything. I don't know your experience so far, but it's tough for me to get into our CRM, it's tough for me to get in to our advisor portal. It's just it's taking me longer. Every time I click something, it's taken, you know, whereas it used to be instantaneous, it's taking five to 10 seconds of the computer just thinking and trying to get there. Mm -hmm. So there's certainly an opportunity as it relates to infrastructure build outs, whether it be cell phone towers, broadband, stuff like that. I mean, I think those are some of the some examples of issues and opportunities that are out there, Derek, you know?
1: Yeah. And that last one is my favorite one that you mentioned. It's a perfect example of what is this thing going to look like on the other side? And what are the, the specific sectors and, and companies that, that are going to take advantage of it? If you can get specific on, on that infrastructure investing, that seems to be a, a pretty clear path to being a big winner on the other side of this.
0: I agree. I'm glad you mentioned individual stocks, right? Because there's a lot of individual stocks out there that are being unfairly punished. Mm-hmm. Names that we really like, they might be med tech names where their long-term secular growth story is still intact, right? Let's assume you're a company that supplies medical supplies that are used for elective surgeries. Mm-hmm. I understand no one's going in for an elective surgery today and coming home with COVID-19. I get it. But if you need a new knee, if you need a new hip, if you need a stint, you're going in, even if it's six months from today, you will go in. So there, a lot of those stocks, are they're unfairly punished. They're They're down 50% from their highs. And there's opportunities for you to upgrade your portfolio, getting out of some of the stocks that might not be best positioned to snap back aggressively when the economy does rebound into some other names that are down just as much, if not more. That's the key psychological thing, Derek, is some people, they don't want to sell their losers because they think they're selling low and they're locking in losses. Right, But that's just quite simply not true. If you immediately after selling your loser, reposition it into another company that's down that you think is more likely to rebound faster. Opportunity cost is really what you're wasting by riding those losers down. And definitely don't dollar cost average down if if you're not confident that the stock's going to rebound either. Not a good strategy at this point, unless you're really convinced that that it's going to be a great standout company for the next decade. So that wraps up today's episode. We appreciate you tuning in as always. Shoot us an email if you have any questions, info at swpconnect.com. That's info at swpconnect.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk with you soon.